to that question, do I think the Megillah has one point of view, and that the rabbinic tradition has a different point of view? I think in general, and we'll get to this in general, and that the rabbinic project, if there is one project, is to align Purim back into the more normative set of holidays that we have, which the core of which is Pesach, basically. Because the Purim that emerges from the reading of the Megillah is potentially a very different Purim. And that the project, the way that the tradition tries to do it, the Mishnah of the Gemara, is to try to reframe Purim in terms of a normative holiday. You see this, by the way, even in terms of this distinction between, which we'll get to later, but the distinction between, let's say, the two different ways Purim is observed, which are radically different. One is basically, I would say, the rabbinic Purim. You read the Megillah, you have a meal, Sudas Purim, Tzedakah, Matanos Levyonim. You share the meal with others, it's probably part of Mishloch Manot. So if you think of those constituent elements of celebration of Purim, basically, they're not so different from any holiday. A regular holiday, you have a festive meal. There's an idea of sharing the meal on the, on the festivals. There's Samachta Bechagecha. The Mitzvah gives Tzedakah on, on Tzedakahs related to the festivals. And we read the Torah, basically. We read a sacred text. That's fundamentally the way we observe the holy days. So in this respect, Purim is not very different. There's some distinctions, but fundamentally, it's more or less in the same ballpark. Read the Megillah with the Suda, Tzedakah, sharing. That's your regular. But then there's the whole other Purim, which is the folk observances of Purim over many years in many communities. But you have a whole different set of elements, which are very foreign to anything we know in terms of the normative holidays. You know, it has to do with all kinds of essentially kind of anarchic element, drinking till you're drunk, and masquerades, and masks, and blurring distinctions between good and evil, and making so much noise you can't hear the Megillah, and eating the meal at the last split second of the day when basically Purim's already over, etc., etc. So that's a radically different observance of Purim, and it probably is related to Shmuel's point about you know, there's the rabbinic Purim on one hand, and there's another Purim, which is called the folk Purim, the people's Purim, etc. And not only are they different, I would say, but one tends to undercut the other. But we'll get to that later on. In any event, coming back to when the Megillah is read, the Bachokas in the Gemara, and we follow the opinion that Adr Shani and the Gemara says, one of the reasons that's given is to adjoin Gula to Gula. But the question, a very important question, what does that mean, to adjoin the Geula to the Geula, and yes, I do believe, and it's a very central thought of mine, that fundamentally in reading the Megillah lends itself to a different reading, but the rabbinic project, if you want to use that term, is to try to realign Purim and put it in the broader context of the regular normative holidays. I would say that in general, and this is maybe a big gener- generalization, but in general, I would say that in, not just in the case of Purim, but there is a tendency, I would say, a rabbinic tendency is reflected in the Mishnah to try to, for the most part, bring, bring things in line with a more normative practice. comes up in other situations as well. I can't get into that now. But in general, I think that is the, the view of the Mishnah, which tries to... Having said that, it's never so simple. In any event, let's start with the Megillah. Spend a few weeks on the Megillah. Yes? Can you address the fact that um, if that's the rabbinic ten- tendency in general to bring things in line with normative practice, and the Mishnah and the rabbis' practices pretty strong and powerful over practice of Judaism. 
Um, will you address eventually why they have not been able to conjoin the, uh, the two, the folk practice with the normative practice, while we still have these amazingly diverse ways of celebrating home, one which, which really almost uh, negates the other? Will you address why? I can't address why except to say that to eradicate practices which speak to people's souls is not a simple matter. There's a deep truth, in other words, the point, especially the point of my book, that the, how that the Megillah describes a world, that's the main point I want to make, describes a world which people resonate with, which is not necessarily the world that is kind of the world that we generally assume, kind of standard, if that term is accurate, standard way of seeing the world. But, you know, people say many things, but what do people actually believe is a good question. And the fact of the matter is that the folk practices of the people, by the way, I'm not saying that they're conscious of them. I don't believe they're conscious of them for the most part. But they reflect a maybe a collective unconscious of a world which is radically different from the world that I think emerges from normative Judaism. It is a book, let's not forget, when not only is, does God never speak in the book, but God's never mentioned in the book. Let's start with that. So let's, let's right, right off the bat, there's something about this book which is very, very different. And what's unclear in the book, we'll get to it, I guess, discuss this, is to what extent God is in the story altogether. There are different ways to read the book. I will suggest three ways to read it. But in two of the three ways, God is either God is involved from a distance, or not at all. Well, basically, well, let's put it this way: if you walked in the street and you found this little megillah in the middle of the street, you never heard of Judaism, nothing, and you picked this book up, okay, and you read it, I don't think most people would say, "Ah, this is a book where God is helping from the distance." You know what I mean? I don't think you would even cross your mind such a thought. You would say, "Interesting palace intrigue. It's pretty funny in a certain way." kind of ironic, but, you know, it turned out for the best. But, uh, you know, on the other hand, could have turned out otherwise. And I think that would be, and Esther's very clever, but I don't think a reader who found this book in the street would necessarily say, ah, I see the hand of God. Some might. I wouldn't. But that, but I don't think they, there's no evidence in the book, per se. Now, one second before, I just want to add that we have to remember that the books of the Bible are all connected to each other. There are intertexts, all kinds of illusions. So through the illusions, basically, we can, you know, you can read in many things. But my point is not that God is not in the book. I'm not suggesting that. I'm suggesting something different, which is that maybe God is in the book, maybe God's not in the book. You can choose to believe that God is in the book if you wish to do so. Many have done so. I even make the argument that God is very much in the book. It's an interesting argument. As long as you understand one thing that a perfectly intelligent reader might come to the opposite conclusion. That's very important. That's, that's, that's why I care about this book, actually. You may believe that, you know, God was present during the Shoah. You can believe all you want. Totally respect that belief. As long as you understand that many people lived through it, came to precisely the opposite conclusion. You understand there's another way to see the world. That, that's what's important, okay? Just came back from a trip to Israel. A week long as a part of this delegation of rabbis to go to the Mideast and what the sponsored by a foundation that wants to bring peace to the Mideast, two state solution, but and that was very interesting. I, I had my reasons for going. And my reasons for going were to hear 
a different narrative, basically. You meet all kinds of people. I was in refugee camps. I met some of the heads of the PA, etc. And you hear their narrative. You hear what, what, what they're saying, which I think they, some of them actually believe. And it's a completely different narrative. It's a very important point. To understand, I have one way of seeing it. Someone else has a different way to see it. It's very important to understand someone else has a different way to see it. They have their story. So the Megillah is a book that lends itself to a variety of readings, one of which is, and that's reflected in the folk practice. The folk practices all speak to one thing, which is that the world is a very dark place and that it's a place of randomness and things could be otherwise. That's fundamentally what the, what the folk practice is. Not that the people doing it understand that. I'm not suggesting that. But that's what they say, basically. And they say even something more extreme than that, but I'll get to that later on. What do you want to say, Shmuel? It's just coming to me in the last few days that there's an incredibly brilliant um, political writing. Um, and you were just talking to that, that actually that maybe a wide audience or maybe the widest audience that is not interested or, or immediately um, going, to, going to take on a divine point of view, nevertheless, once the day is locked out and that's the last day on the change of circumstance, Right. Just left as a subtle thread. That's right. The fasting certainly speaks to an idea that it's an appeal to some divine power, some divine force. But I would say that if God is not obviously present in the book, or maybe not in the book at all, so that raises what I think is the core question, which is, if God is not present, then what... What does it say about, about us? What is our task, our role, in a world in which God is not obviously there? Maybe there, but what is the human role? I will reframe that question in a few minutes or reformulate it. In any event, we can now begin with the Megillah. That will start. I will confess from the outset one of my favorite books. That book begins, chapter 1. Everybody has a Tanakh? That's how the book begins. It came to pass in the days of Achashverosh. Now that expression, Vahibi me Achashverosh, is very important because Vahibi me X always suggests that X is a very central figure. You wouldn't say Vahibi me some minor figure. Vahibi me X is saying that this person is the critical person of that time. And in point of fact, in the Megillah, Achashve Rosh, we don't maybe not think of it this way, but Achashve Rosh is the most dominant character in terms of appearances. He appears in virtually every single scene, either directly or indirectly. He appears in the very beginning of the book, and he appears at the end of the book, the very end of the book, which is here chapter 10, for some bizarre reasons, chapter 10, I don't know why, chapter 10 has three verses in it, but Vayasam Amoch Achashve Rosh, Masawa Aretz Hayam. And the last verse, So it mentions in this three-verse chapter, it mentions Achashvei Rosh twice. And in fact, he's virtually in every scene. So the book begins with Achashvei Rosh, and the book ends with Achashvei Rosh. One might say that other characters may change, may disappear, may rise and fall. The constant in the book is Achashvei Rosh, whom the Megillah refers to as Hamelech on innumerable occasions. That's a very important point. In other words, the, the world, the king of the world, is Achashverosh. And now let me get to the first point I want to make about the king of the world being Achashverosh. 
particularly striking because God is never mentioned at all, not mentioned one time. The book, and this is my assumption about the book, the book is about this world. The world is the world of Rosh. He runs the show. God is not exp- explicitly mentioned at all. And what kind of world is this world? So the point is the following. What's very striking about the book, various scholars notwithstanding, that the book makes virtually no reference whatsoever to the land of Israel. It's mentioned in one place, that Mordechai the Jew was banished, was exiled from Jerusalem. That is mentioned. But having mentioned that Mordechai the Jew was banished from Jerusalem, the book has no discussion whatsoever of Jerusalem or the land of Israel or a temple, unlike other books of the Bible, say the book of Daniel, Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah, so it's all about returning to Zion. Ezra and Nehemiah is in, the, in exile, but he's thinking about, uh, he's very upset. He's thinking about the land being desolate. He wants to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, etc. Daniel opens up the windows of his door, of his house, and he prays facing Jerusalem three times a day. So, I mean, those are books which speak of, even though you're in exile, but you're thinking about the Holy Land and maybe even the Temple. The Megillah, by contrast, is exactly the opposite. The Megillah makes actually no reference to the land of Israel, no explicit reference, or to the Temple, nor does it suggest at any point, in my view, about ever going back there. The land of Israel, the Temple, and all that, Maybe some kind of distant reality, but in the book, in the Megillah itself, is no reality at all. The Megillah doesn't end with thinking about the Israel temple land. The book ends with Achashverosh taxing his constituents, which is basically the world, and Mordechai the Jew being raised to prominence because he is the second in command. <laughs> He's the Mishnah Amelech. So scholars, notwithstanding the idea that somehow the land of Israel is central in this book strikes me as very far removed from the plain reading of the text, which suggests no such thing. So what, what it does suggest is something very different, and that's how I want to begin. The Chumash, everything takes us back to the beginning of the Chumash, all past lead to Genesis. And in the Chumash, actually, the way the Chumash is set up, it begins with a sacred space, which, which he calls the Garden of Eden, Gan Eden, and that's the space in which the human being is banished. And they never go back there. And then the Chumash suggests that there are alternatives to Eden. Alternatives mean it's not Gan Eden, can't go back there. But there, are, there is a possibility of establishing a place or dwelling in a place where God is present. Maybe God is even very present. In the beginning of the Chumash, in Breshit, the person who is discovering or is to whom it is revealed God's place where the human can abide we behave ourselves is Avraham, and in two different ways. One is first Lechacha of Avraham in chapter 12. Go to the place that I will show you, and I'll make you a nation, and all kinds of blessings. And he says, Avram goes, Vayelech Avram, Vayera Elohim, right? God appears to Avram in verse 7, I think it is, of chapter 12, and says, I will give you a descendants this, this land. So that's the first Lechacha. That's the land of Canaan. That's the covenantal land. That's the land where God speaks and God is present. And the human being can live there if the human being behaves. The human being, Abraham's descendants, or those who choose to follow Abraham's path, can live in the land. That's the first lechlecha. And the second lechlecha 
chapter 22, Kedat Yitzchak, there Avram is told not just about a land, but is told about a specific place within the land, which Avram is again sent to, and Avram goes to that place, and he calls the place Hashem Yireh, place that God sees, or God chooses, perhaps is a better translation, which today is known as the place that God has seen, that's the second Lechacha, that's Har Moriah, that's the Mikdash, call it Mikdash, call it Mishkan, call it Mikdash, the sacred place, and God and the human being can somehow live together. That is the story of the Chumash, in short. It's not easy to do that because if you misbehave, you're banished from the sacred place. The temple can be destroyed. Moshe breaks the tablet, so we can't build a temple. Torah talks about banishment from the land. But theoretically speaking, you can actually return to the sacred place. You can live in God's presence. You can't go back to Gan Eden. Gan Eden's out. Gan Eden is out because Gan Eden is a place where people don't have too many choices. But having eaten of the tree of knowledge, fruit of knowledge, we have choice. So you can't be in Gan Eden, but you could be an alternative to Gan Eden. That, that's the story of the Chumash. However, and this is very important, the story of Lechucha in the Chumash is chapter 12. But before you get to chapter 12, you get to chapter 11. And there's a story in chapter 11, and a very important story in chapter 11, which I call the false alternative to Aden. And the story of chapter 11 is that the whole world gathers together in the east, in the land of Shinar, the land of Bavel. And in that place, the people determine they're going to build a city, and not just build a city, but have a tower, and the tower will go to heaven. We'll establish for ourselves a name. That's the story of Migdal Bavel. Migdal Bavel is the whole world gets together and chooses a particular place. The place is Bavel, or Shinar as it's known. And the ruler apparently is from Bavel. Apparently the, leader, the leaders are from Shinar or Bavel. The person who's identified with Bavel in the biblical text in chapter 10 is none other than our friend Nimrod. Nimrod is the king, first king of Batir Reshit Ma'amachto Bavel. He's the first king. The first king in the Bible is Nimrod. And his kingdom is Bavel. His name is Nimrod, we shall rebel. And one can see in building the tower to heaven, kind of ar- human arrogance, and even a challenge to God, perhaps. So that was the first attempt of the human being to establish the place which we humans have chosen. God didn't choose that Bavel. But the human being chose Bavel. The word Bavel itself, by the way, Bavel, the Torah says it means related to the word Balak, because God confused the language. So as Kasuto points out, obviously, there's no way that's the Pshat of what Bavel means. Nobody would call their city confusion. So Bavel means, of course, Bavel. The Bav of El. Now, what is a Bav? Bav is a gate, like Bav Metziah, Bav Basra. So the, the gate, the, the gate to heaven, heaven's gate, the gate to heaven. That's Baba. And that doesn't work. God doesn't like what people are doing. God is concerned that the human may forget that the human is actually human. The human may think the human is God. So God is dispersing the human beings over the face of the earth. And the way that God disperses the humans over the face of the earth in chapter 11 of the Torah is to confuse the language. They can't. They don't speak the same language. They can't cooperate with each other. They can't build. And what happens is that 
from that place, Misham, from that place, Hefitzam Hashem al Pnei Kol God scattered them over the face of the earth. And the very next story, and there's a little genealogy of shame down to Avram. That's the second half of chapter 11. And then beginning of chapter 12. So the next story, right after the failed attempt of Bavel to create the alternative to Eden, is Lechucha. Now what's interesting, by the way, is that Lechucha is the beginning, the command is the beginning of chapter 12. And Avram does what God tells him to do. God goes, Avram goes, and he walks, and he gets to the land of Canaan, and he builds one altar, and he builds a second altar. And then the Torah says, he continues to go south. And in verse number 10 of chapter 12, there was a famine. Avram went down to Egypt. The famine was very severe, heavy, severe. So the story of the land of the Lechucha, actually, if you think about it, is sandwiched between two stories. The narrative which precedes it, immediately preceding narrative, is Migdal Bavel. And the narrative that follows it, Avram does go to the Vayelech, but he continues to go south. Then there's a famine, he keeps going south. And he ends up in the land of Egypt. So the land of Canaan actually is sandwiched narratively in the Chumash between two stories, between Bavel on one hand and Mitzrayim on the other. Now, the Megillah, I maintain, is saying the following. This is the way the book works. The Megillah is saying, we all know that Avram is sent to the sacred land, and Avram goes... And he goes in chapter 12, and he goes in chapter 22, and there's the Holy Land, and there's the Temple, and all that stuff. That's all true. Now let's just imagine for a moment something else. Imagine. Imagine, actually, that you never leave Babel. Imagine that, the Torah says, they all came to Babel, and they, under the banner of Kedem, under the banner of Nimrod, or somebody like Nimrod, and they built a tower to heaven, and they stayed there. They weren't dispersed over the face of the earth. So what would life be like? And imagine that this Babel culture and the Egypt culture have something very much in common. And imagine that you absent. Imagine that you never get to the land of Canaan. You get to Babel Mitzrayim. You get to Babel that precedes Canaan. And the place in which you live has many, many parallels, similarities to Mitzrayim. Imagine such a thing then what would it mean to live in that, in, in that world? What would it mean to live as a moral human being in that world? What would it mean to live as a Jew in that world? How would you function in that world? That, I maintain, is what the Megillah actually is about. And the Megillah makes a very simple point. One of the themes of the Megillah comes up in the first chapter. Megillah keeps emphasizing in several places that King Achashverosh is the king of 127 different states. And they all speak different languages. Constant emphasizing the speaking different languages. So what is that about? That they all talk different language? Roshon, right? And the point, I think, is that what the Megillah is saying is that in the Chumash, speaking, speaking different languages results in exile, in banishment, in dispersion. People, can, people were unified in Babel. There was Safar, Chatut, Vorim, Achadim. But then in the Chumash, God disperses them because they can't talk the same language. They turn out to be 
127 different places or, or a million different places or whatever, nothing to do with each other. But imagine what would be if the fact of language was not a barrier. You have 127 languages or a million languages and you still have one king. Suppose language was not a barrier to being in the same one place. Then what you would have, you'd still be in Bavo, basically. Still be in Bavo. So that, I maintain, is how the Megillah begins and ends. The Megillah begins and ends by saying, we're in Bavo, and we're also in Mitzrayim. And the Megillah says, imagine, imagine, imagine that the world in which you live is not the world of Canaan, not the world where God speaks. That's the land of Canaan. Not where God is present and God speaks and God commands and God directs. But imagine, or the Mishkan, the place from which God talks, but imagine the world in which we live is a world where God does not speak. God does not talk. God is not obviously present. And there's a different person in charge, a king, to whom the different languages are not any kind of problem. There's no problem with that. Okay, different languages, that's great. But I'm still the king of everything. And I'll write everybody in their own language. So then the question is, how do you live in such a world? And that, I maintain, is what the Megillah is actually about. And the Megillah, I think, has very far-reaching thoughts about, or, or suggestions, about what that might mean. And there, I think, the rabbinic rabbis drew the line. There, I think, the rabbis make an attempt to foreclose that possibility. But you can't actually totally foreclose it. Because that which speaks to basic human understanding you can't foreclose it. You can tell people what they should be thinking from today to whatever. doesn't mean people will actually think what you tell them they should be thinking. So that's, that, that, that is the assumption of the Megillah. It's a book in which return to Zion is simply not a factor in the book, as far as I can see. Nor is Zion a factor in the book altogether. That's my reading of it. Others may disagree, but I maintain this is a, a better reading. And this is the problem of the book. Okay, and this is the and the person who represents the king is Achashverosh, and we will see what kind of king is Achashverosh. The Gemara has a machokas whether he's the Melech Rasha or, or a Tipesh. Is he a fool or is he wicked? I maintain that it's really not a machokas. In other words, the point is everybody agrees he's both. The question is: is he, is he primarily a fool or is he primarily wicked? The rabbinic midrashim, for the most part, see him as wicked, but he also may be a fool, but he's certainly a bad guy. There's no doubt about that. Yes? Yeah, in, in Egypt, being a uh, recapitulation of Bondel... I wouldn't say recapitulation exactly. I would say it's, there's, there is a distinction, but they're very similar. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll get to that. That's, that, that's all fine, but a, but, a, but a spark of the ethos of, of, Bar, of Barbell. What's very interesting to me is that right away in the Chumash, you see actually the virtue of that kind of totalitarian organization of a state, because it's the one place where there isn't a famine. That's true. There's no famine. I mean, well, there is when during Joseph's... Yeah. Uh, yes. Unusual, so, so, so. right. Well, the water's always there, right. No, but the water's always there, right. There's no famine in Ghana and Ghana either. neither. Because everything's there in Gan Eden. That's the Torah calls. Gigan Hashem, Kieretz Mitzrayim. Sodom, Mitzrayim, and Gan Eden are all the same. After we're banished. Gigan Hashem, Kieretz Mitzrayim. Okay, we'll see, we'll see about this. But this is the assumption I make about the book. The assumption. There are many people who want to read in all kinds of stuff about the land of Israel and into the Megillah. And the Gemara tries to read that in to some degree as well. But I think in terms of the Pshat, it's simply not there. 
Okay, now we now we can start our study. First verse, I mean every verse is interesting. So what is Hodu Vyad Kush is usually translated as Ethiopia. Hodu, here they translate Hodu as India. I don't know where that comes from actually, don't know. In modern Hebrew it's that way too. But I, I, I think that Hodu Vyad Kush actually is saying something additional. Hodu Vyad Kush. Kush, of course, we know is Ethiopia, and Kush in the Chumash, Moses married a Kushite woman, a black woman. He's black, and Miriam maligns Moshe because of this, and a punishment, she turns white. She's leprous. So Hodu Vyad Kush strikes one as dark, black or dark. Hod, which means majesty, basically. Hod is majesty. So it means may Hodu Vyad Kush from light to dark, or, or I would say a different term that we have in our text, shemesh viad That's the big halal, right? God is praised, from the rising of the sun until the setting of the sun. So mehodu viad kush, actually, for our purposes, means one thing. He's king of the world. He is king of the world, period. There's no other place. In this book, he runs the show, he runs the world. We thought of God as being the Mizrach Shemesh Viad Hashem. But in Megillah Esther, Achashverosh is the king of every place. He's the king at the beginning and the end of the book. So this is his place. He's the king. You have to deal with Achashverosh one way or the other. You can't avoid him. You got to deal with him. And then the Megillah adds, Sheva Vyasrim Umeya Medina, 127 states. Elsewhere in the Bible, the number of states is mentioned, I think it's 120. So 127 is a number that resonates with us, obviously, because we know that Sarah lives 127 years. And the question, when you see something like this, what do you make of it? Is it something to be taken seriously? Is it just a kind of literary effect of some sort? Or is there some deeper point about the 127? So, again, I think there's a deeper point. I've been accused of overreading. Maybe that's true. But I'd rather overread than, uh, than underread. But... 127, I think, is significant over here. In other words, when the reader reads 127, the first thing that pops into your head is Sarah. And Sarah, actually, is a f- person who, who the Megillah can easily recall. Because we have to remember that Sarah, apart from being a woman, is a woman who's, I- who's taken. And more significant than that, her identity is actually concealed. No one knows who she is, Right? Pharaoh doesn't know. Abraham says, this is my sister. So a true identity is actually concealed. And the Megillah already in the first verse, without saying any more, is already dropping hints, as, it, as great books do, that the critical person in this book will be somebody, a woman, whose identity will be concealed. Of course, the Megillah has an additional fact, which is her identity is concealed not just from people around her, but it would appear that identity is concealed from uh, herself as well. That's another story. So the Megillah has all kinds of interesting twists and turns. Anyway, the very first verse is an innocent little verse, but it says a lot. It says about Achashverosh being central, being of king of, of all, and then this business of 127, which the Megillah will come back to. Now let's continue. By Mahem, in those days, Keshevet HaMelech Achashverosh Al Kisei Malchuto, 
Asher b'shushal When King Achashverosh occupied the royal throne in Shushan Habira. Shushan, here they translate Habira as the fortress. In the Megillah, just take note of this, sometimes the Megillah refers to Shushan. And sometimes the Megillah refers to Shushan Habira. So we'll see if that distinction is significant. I believe it is, at least in a couple of places. But we take note of this, that here it's Shushan Habira. Sometimes Bira is, is defined as capital. Right? In modern Hebrew, it could be capital, but here they translate Bira as a fortress. Mishnat Shalosh Lemocho Asam Mishter In the third year of his reign, why he waited for the third year to do this is not clear. So the Midrashim think that he waited till the third year because till the third year his kingship was not secure. But in the third year of his reign, he made a party for his servants, Sarav Avadav, Chel Parasu Madaya Partamim, Visareham Dinot Lifanav. In the third year of his reign, he makes a big party for his administration. Nobles, the governors, Right? And the purpose is The purpose of it is to display. That's the word. To show. What is to display his great wealth, his great wealth, his great dignity and, and, and majesty. For many days, a 180 day party. Here we come to something else in the Megillah that's very interesting about the Megillah, which is uh, exaggeration is the name of the game in the Megillah. Not just in this particular case, a party of 180 days, but elsewhere in the Megillah as well, there's numbers or measurements that are thrown out which sound fantastic. But that's the Megillah is nothing if not grandiose. So here we have the king who is, I would say, I would put it this way, the Chumash talks about a king. The Chumash speaks of a king. I mean, it talks about kings in many places. It talks about the, there are kings in the book of Breshit. There's Paro, there's Avimelech. There's the four kings, there's the five kings. Nimrod is the first king. As a general rule, I'd say they're pretty bad for the most part. Almost all of them are no good. And then the Chumash speaks in the book of Devarim about appointing a Jewish king. And you come into the land, and you say you want a king, like all the other nations. That's chapter 17 of Zvarim. You may or should appoint for yourself a king. So the question is, when you're reading the Chumash, what does the Chumash think about a king? Is the Chumash in favor of the king? Or is the Chumash saying, if you want a king, you can have a king, but just make sure he doesn't have too many horses and too many wives and too much money, etc.? So it depends how you read the parsha, chapter 17. I would offer the following interpretation, which I believe to be saying it. I think it's the most plausible. What the Chumash is saying is this. When you come into the land and you say you want a king like the other nations, the Chumash is not against kingship. The Chumash assumes kingship, actually. The Chumash assumes when you come into the land, you're going to want to have a centralized government because the book of Devarim is all about centralization. You have centralized worship. You have a centralized place, the place which God chooses. There's no problem with that. Kingship is a good thing, actually, because people take responsibility. However, what's not a good thing is if you say you want a king like all the other nations, because the book of Devarim in particular, and the Chumash in general, does not necessarily assume that what the other nations want is something that we should imitate 
quite the opposite. So if you say you want a king like the other nations, with the Chumash Som Tosim Alecha Melech, you could, yes, place a king upon yourselves, but not one like the other nations, but rather one that God would choose. And then the Chumash lays out what it means to have a king that God would choose. I would say there are several features of that chapter, which is chapter 17 of Devarim. First of all, one that God would choose. That says something right away. That means that the king should understand, first of all, that God has chosen the king. The king has a boss. The king is not supreme. There's someone above the king. God and God's commandments. The king has to write a Torah and carry it with him at all times to remind himself that God is in charge. That's number one. Number two, choose a king from amongst your brethren, which means, certainly the book of Shmuel sees it this way, it's not just a technicality that the king can't be a foreigner, but the king should be somebody who sees himself as serving the people. The king should see himself as serving God on one end and serving the people on the other. Those are the two ways the king has to see himself in his position. Then the Chumash adds something else. Two things. First of all, there is always the danger that when somebody becomes a king, even if the person who becomes king is a decent human being, which is often not the case, but even if it is the case, then the very position of kingship the very position of power lends itself to, strangely enough, desire to have more power. So the Chumash is very concerned with excess. Lo yarbe. The king should not have too many horses, too many wives. The king should not have too much money. And then the Torah added another point about the king, what the king should not do. He shouldn't bring the people back to Egypt. The Chumash is very strict on that. Now, Egypt and kingship are mutually exclusive. They're mutually exclusive, I think, because Egypt is the place where you work on someone else's agenda. You don't have your own autonomy. You're a slave. And the idea of kingship, in theory, is the people choose the king, which I think in the Chumash is a positive. People are saying, we want to be responsible for ourselves. Okay, we have faith in God, but we see ourselves in our own land as taking responsibility. And then the Torah adds another point about the king, that when the king assumes the throne, Keshevet, when he sits on his throne, he, sh- he should write a Sefer Torah, and not just write a Sefer Torah, he actually has to read it too. In order that he fear God, and in order that he not be haughty over his brethren, as I mentioned before. That's what the Chumash says about the Jewish king. Was this always fulfilled? Anybody who reads the Bible can see obviously, that it's almost never fulfilled. But, in theory, that's what the Torah says about the king. So the haughtiness is out, uh, the excess is out, thinking that you run the world is out, the concern for the people and see yourself as the people's servant is in, and especially to write a safer. Now, just in thinking about this, it should become obvious to everyone that the Megillah plays with this like crazy in terms of Achashverosh. I would say from the beginning, just to make a simple point about the Megillah, writing a Sefer is something very central to the Megillah. The Sefer is something the king writes. Now, before we get into the Megillah, how many people have seen my, my, my book on the Megillah, by the way? I wrote a book. It's in Hebrew. Not a simple Hebrew, either. It's a poetic Hebrew. It's written. I didn't write it, but it's here on the radio. It's my ideas. So, I like that book a lot. I think it's uh, 
extremely interesting. We should translate it. Yeah. We're working on it. We're working on it. But um, the writing of a sefer by a king, it doesn't, doesn't start with Achashverosh. We have in the Bible kings who write Svarim, kings or queens. And two of them stand out in particular of a king or a king-queen who write a sefer. The first one that stands out, of course, is our beloved David, King David, who writes a sefer. What sefer does he write? So it's a very short book. Probably has two words in it. He writes a sefer, and he gives it to his one of his... It's about Uriah. He gives it to Uriah the Hittite to take back to battle. I say it has two words in it. Kill, kill me. Kill me is the two words, right, basically. It's a short book. Kill me. And he knows, of course, that Uriah would never open up the, the letter, being the noble soldier that he is, of course. And he hands the safer to his general, Yoav, who, I would say, reluctantly holds his nose and kills Uriah. But in order to kill Uriah, to cover it up properly, other soldiers die as well. Now, the point of that safer, of course, the point of the safer is that the Chumash talks about, the Book of Shmuel already plays with the idea of a safer. In the Chumash, you write a Sefer. The Sefer you write in the Chumash is a Sefer Torah, or part of the Sefer Torah. The purpose being to engender in you, incur in you the fear of God, right? You shouldn't be haughty and warded over another human being. In the book of Shmuel, the Sefer that King David writes, though, is a Sefer which he, in which he's going to execute one of his own generals. Uriah Chiti, by the way, is mentioned elsewhere in the book of Shmuel. He's not only mentioned in the story of Bathsheba. Where else is he mentioned? And it's very striking where he's mentioned, actually. Yeah. Yes, it is. There's a list in the book of Shmuel. It's very interesting. I mean, Shmuel is amazing in its own right. So is the Megillah. There's a list in the book of Shmuel of David's giborim. David has great warriors. The list, by the way, is found not only in Shmuel, but the same list, or virtually identical list, is found in the book of Chronicles. You could check it out. You'll see for yourselves. However, with some minor differences, the order of the names is different. This is actually a very interesting point about reading the Bible. We all know that the book of Chronicles is a very late book of the Bible. Everybody knows that. Which is why the book of Chronicles, even though it deals with Shlomo and David, etc., and all the kings, is found in the section of the Bible we call Ketuvim. It's not in Nevi'im. Often it's the last book of the Bible, actually. And that's, of course, chronologically speaking, it was written very late. It's written about the time to return to, to Israel. Return, right? So it's a very late book. And the later books of the Bible are in the section we call Ketuvim, not in Nevi'im. Now, having said that, this is a very important point. It does not mean that the material in the book of Chronicles is later than the material in the book of Shmuel. Sometimes it does mean that. And sometimes you can see that the book of Chronicles is actually editing the text of Shmuel. That's for sure. For sure. Not just leaving out. It also changes some words. But this is the important point. Some of the stories in the book of Chronicles, which are not in Sefer Shmuel, not what it leaves out, but what it puts in, you shouldn't assume that those stories are either made up later on or later traditions. They may be earlier traditions, which the book of Shmuel left out. I have no doubt there are thousands of stories about David. He's a warrior, he's a king, he's a poet, he's a singer, he's, you name it. So the, the books are culling from different, probably oral traditions about this character, and each book is saying something about painting an image of, of this person. 
So in the book of Chronicles, when it lists, I think it's 37 Giborim of David, Uriah the Hittite is found in the middle. He's one of the 37. Uriah, he's not the greatest Gibor, but he's one of the Giborim. But in the book of Shmuel, unbelievably, in chapter 23 of 2 Samuel, which is the next to last chapter of the book, he's mentioned last. He's the last of the Giborim. Now the question you ask yourself is, you have two different lists, right? Which do you think, if we had to choose, one was the original list and one is a variation, which one is the older list and which one is the variation? So it strikes me, actually, it's hard to know for sure, but if I had to put my money on it, I would say that the original list is the one in Chronicles, in Divri Ayamim, and that the Book of Shmuel has manipulated it in such a way that Uriah Achiti is the last verse of chapter 23, which leads you right into chapter 24, which is the story of King David taking the census and God's great anger against David and against Israel, and, and, that there are other, and that there are other parallels between them. But my point is, let me get to the point I want to make about the Sefer. That's an aside. But the point about the Sefer is that the king, it's interesting that in the Chumash, the Chumash never says what a king does. Job description, right? There's no job description for the king. It says what he shouldn't do. Not have too much money and wives and horses and all that. It says he should write a Torah. Well, what does the guy do for a living? Well, what, what, what's it actually his job? The Chumash, maybe it assumes you know, but it never says it. So where does the Bible say what a king does for, for a living? What, what is the king's job? What does he do? So that's found in Shmuel chapter 8. When the people go to Samuel the prophet and they want a king. And they say what the king will do. The king has two jobs. Ushvatanu Malkeinu, he will be our judge. Biyatzalifaneinu, he'll go before us. Binucham, biyuchamit muchamoteinu, he will fight our wars. So the king fundamentally in the Bible has two roles. One is, in one form or another, he's some kind of a judge. He's not the only judge, but he has some role in judging. That's number one. And number two, of course, he's the commander-in-chief. He's the, he's, he's the one who fights our battles. Those are basically the two roles of the king. Now, when David writes his Sefer, and he hands it to Uriah the Hittite, this noble warrior, to take back into battle, and the Sefer says a directive to General Yoav to kill him, what is David actually doing in that story? He's judging and essentially fighting, like he's creating a battle. He's essentially directing... What is wrong with what David does? I mean, it's cold-blooded murder, we got that, but what is the... What is wrong? I think he's taking his personal life and injecting it into the... That's right. He's not doing his job, basically. His job is to fight war. His job is to kill the enemy. But he started his job is not job at the beginning when he's walking on the roof instead of going into battle. True. He was sleeping in the day. That's he should true. have been in the battle. That's all true. The troops are in the battle. That's 100% all true. Israel is in the battle and he's right. sleeping. It's so po- he wasn't true. doing his job from there. It starts, with a, it starts with not going to work one morning because you're tired. Huh. It ends up with mass murder shortly afterwards. But the point is, he didn't intend to kill it, but that's what happens. But my point is that the safer, of course is exactly the point of the story is that he actually he's more concerned with his own general, who did, who's a noble general, who doesn't want to go back home because how can I go back to my own house if the other soldiers are in the, in the, in the field and the, God, and the Ark of God is there and they're sleeping and I should go back in the comforts of my own home? How, how can I do such a thing, he says. God forbid. This is the guy he kills. So in other words, the point of the story is he's supposed to fight the enemy 
But as the story progresses, without getting into all the details of it, he has no interest in, the, in that war. His only interest is using the war, uses the war, to get rid of someone who poses a personal problem because this guy's wife is now pregnant with David's child. That's the story of that Sefer. That's one story. Then we have another story in the Bible where someone writes a Sefer. Yes? The first Sefer is about Amalek. Amalek. When God says to write this in so I was trying to think, like, how is that relating to these kingly sacred? Not sure it's related to the. That's a good yeah. question. It's certainly related to the Megillah, where Amalek is the center. We'll get to the Amalek. There's another king who writes a sefer in the Bible. That's perfectly related to, to each criteria. No, it's related. No, no doubt. Based on his judgment. Of, true. Uh, of the, that is very true. No, no, it's, it's. I think it is related to it. I'm just saying that. So I want to focus in on the other story in the Bible of the king who writes a Sefer. Two go together. David's Sefer is to essentially use the war for his own purposes, to kill his kill the good guys. He doesn't care about the other guys. He, he wants to use the war to... This is from concept, not from memory, but it's going to be Ahab and Jezebel. That's correct. Of course that's the case. The story is that King Ahab has a nice little summer resort up north Shomron, whatever it is. And he has a next-door neighbor. His name is Novot. And Novot has a very beautiful vineyard. It's chapter, I think, 21 of Malachi Baruch. And so Achav goes to Novot and says, look, he says, you have a beautiful vineyard. You're my next-door neighbor. I'll tell you what. Why don't you sell me that vineyard? Because it's right next door to me. It's very beautiful. And I'll give you a lot of money for it. I'll give you a better vineyard someplace else if you, if you want. He offers the money. He says, I'll give you a better one elsewhere. I got a lot of vineyards, you know what I mean? But this is right next door to my house. So it's really nice. So Navot says to him, God forbid, how could I give you this vineyard? This is the family vineyard. This is a, he sees it as a religious thing. It's not just my parents, my father, whatever. This is my inheritance. This is my, my portion from God. God forbid, he says, I couldn't do such a thing. So, so Achav goes home and sulks. He's very upset. He's sulking. And in, in through the door walks his wife, Jezebel. What's wrong? Oh, is this, is this guy in this vineyard, he won't sell me the vineyard. I offered him good money, he won't sell it to me. So she laughs. You're, you're a king. Leave it to me, she says. Leave it to me. So she sends Svarim. She sends letters. And what are the letters? To whom does she send the letters? You write it yourself, actually. She sent it to the judges, to the Shoftim. And what she says is, bring Navot up on trial. He has cursed the king and he has blasphemed the name of God. Right? And get two witnesses, she says. Get two witnesses. Make sure you have a fair trial. We believe in trials, right? Get two witnesses. And after the trial, after he's found guilty, the judges will come to that, somehow to that verdict. Take him outside the city and execute him. Because the execution takes place typically outside. And the thinking is, apparently, as the Gemara says, and it seems to be the Pshad, that if you curse the king, and then you are executed for that, the king can lawfully possess your property. So it's all legit, as we say. It's all legit. So there the Sfarim are addressing the other element of the king, the role of the king to be judge. So the Sfarim there are to, to execute a judgment. And of course, the judgment maintains all the forms of judgment, the two witnesses and the judges and the execution in the proper place. But of course, it's completely perverse. So that's the second, that's the sister story. The first one is to undercut the role of the king as warrior, and the second is to undercut the role of the king 
as judge. So that's the Sfarim. Now we come to our Megillah. The Megillah, one of the features of the Megillah is the writing of Sfarim. Achashverosh writes Sfarim, or Sfarim are written in, his, in the name of Achashverosh. That's another theme we'll get to. But the point is, the Sfarim of Achashverosh, which have to do with rules, basically, rules, regulations, laws, they come under basically two different headings in the book. Maybe it's under one heading. One of them are ridiculous things, you know. There are rules, for example, he writes Svarim about finding a wife to replace Vashti. That's one thing he writes, you know, and then this whole elaborate procedure of gathering all these various women into his harem. That's one. And there are even rules about the beauty treatments, too, by the way. Six months, this, this. And then there's a second set of rules about mass genocide, basically. These are the Svarim. But the point of it, all of it is, all points in one direction, which is, it's all about himself, basically. In other words, as Haman said very well to the king, there's a bunch of people out there, they have their own set of laws. They don't keep your laws. It's not worthwhile to keep them alive. So what does Achashverosh say? Do whatever you want. Do whatever you want. So the, so the Megillah, from the very beginning, by the way, even the expression, Kesheva al-kisei malchuto, which, you, which is taken straight from the Chumash. And it comes to pass when he sits on his throne, he should write a Sefer Torah. So the Megillah is already playing with the idea of the king who writes Svarim. But of course, exactly the opposite of what the Chumash has in mind. And the Chumash is to understand that there's someone above you to be God-fearing and respectful and to be modest. Modesty is not the name of the game in chapter 1. It's quite the opposite. His whole point is to show things off starting with his money, and then later on with his beautiful wife, Bahar Oto. So right from the very outset, you can see in the Megillah that the Megillah is interested in giving a very clear picture of this Achashverosh who will be with us from beginning to end, and it really raises, of course, the question, how could you possibly live in such a world if this guy is the judge? Because the world is not dispersed. The languages are irrelevant. He's one king of the world. So this is how the Megillah actually begins. Fine. Okay. Yes? It just occurred to me that, that like in Chumash, the miracles in Egypt are actually a preface to the revelation of Sinai, of the seat of authority. The Megillah starts with Laharos, that's Laharosa. Okay, what do you make of that? Well, it, it's showing the seat of authority. In the could, could be so, yeah, could be so. Could be a, could, I, I accept that, right. There's no doubt. There's one, in this book, there's one guy in charge. If you forget that, you're going to be in trouble. There's one character in the book who forgets it temporarily, who's actually in charge. And that's Haman, of course. Because that's his plot. Because you, f- you forget who's in charge, even for a moment, you're likely to be in deep trouble, which of course is what's going to happen. But we'll see. We're jumping ahead of ourselves. In any event, so now we have this 180-day party. And now in verse number 5, So at the end of these 180 days is another party. The second party is for the popular, is for the, the folk, the people who find themselves in Shushan. 
from young to old, big, big, big to little. So this is a different picture of the democratic king. Every, everybody's welcome to come. It's a shorter party, seven days. In the courtyard, we'll see that the Megillah also is spending a fair amount of energy on the various places within Achashverosh's court. We'll, we'll get to that another another time. And then it describes the length. Chur, Karpas, Ustetechelet, Achuz Bechavli, Butzvi, Argaman, Agui, Lechesef, Biyamudei Sheish, Mitotzahav, Achesef, Arbitzvat, Bad, Vosheish, Darvis, Ochoret, Vashkot, Bechwe, Zahav, Bikelim, Bikelim, Shonim, Biyen, Malchud, Rav, Ki, Yad, Amelech, Vashdiyak, Hadad, Enonais, Ki, Chen, Yisad, Amelech, Ako, Rav, Beito, Rasot, Kirtzon, Ish, Vaish, Gam, Vashdiyak, Malko, Astam, Ishtay, Nashim, so we have here a description of this, I would say, ornate party. There's actually another party, Vashti the Queen. Queen Vashti has her own party for the women, also in the palace of the king. And what I would say is, before we move beyond this, I think there's something else interesting about this description over here. I'm not talking about the specifics anymore. I'm talking, you have a book here, which begins with a very long description of a party. The the Bible in general is not verbose. So there's something about, not the particular details of it, but the fact that the first nine verses of this book go into specifics about the ornate nature of the party, the various hangings, the silver and the gold, the drinking in abundance. Uh, you can do whatever you want. Everybody's free to do whatever you want. A 180-day party, and then there's another party of seven days, there's something about that itself. Forget everything else, which is very interesting, which says something about the culture. It's a kind of hedonistic culture. You know, it reminds me of, actually, those who saw the movie, The uh, Godfather. Have you seen The Godfather? Godfather starts... Godfather starts with a wedding. And he spends a lot of time, actually, and it's a very long scene. And that is actually a very important scene for the, for the movie. Because the point of the scene is, it picks up on so many different things. On one hand, it's sort of like a Jewish wedding in a certain way, you know what I mean? It's a simcha, you know what I mean? And all the people are there, and they're dancing around and everything. That's, that's one picture. But then, there's another picture, which is, you know, he is the Godfather. Someone comes, someone comes and asks him a favor. He was some guy, some kid beat up on his daughter and he wants them, the godfather, to murder, to kill them. You know what I mean? That's how it begins, you know? So the point is, there's something about, it. and of course, in that scene, at the end of the movie, he's going to be killed. In other words, the, the son-in-law gets killed at the end, not by the godfather, but by his son. But it's, it's actually... What? Where is it custom to ask the bride? I have no idea where that comes from. I have no no idea. I guess it's just the, the idea that she has, has a special standing on that day. Chassan's like a king. So the point is, we have that those traditions. But my point is that beginnings of books or movies or whatever are very important. Because they're giving a certain impression. And the impression over here about the hedonism of the king the self-absorption of the king, the supposed democracy of the king. Every, do whatever you want. The drinking is according to the rule. Ain't no nace. It's a very strange verse. 
There's a rule about drinking. Kadot. What's the rule? Do whatever you want. There's already, already a comedic element in the verse. There's a very strict rule about drinking. Oh, really? What's the rule? Do whatever you want. And of course, it turns out that you can do whatever you want in chapter one, except there's one person who can't do whatever she wants, which is Vashti. Because when the king summons Vashti to show her off before all the guys, she refuses to come. And suddenly, there's an emergency cabinet meeting over here to determine what to do with Vashti in this environment of do whatever you want. That is not exactly the truth. Do whatever you want as long as it pleases the king. So the point is, the first scene over here, apart from the details, the details are also important, but apart from the details, there's something about the story over here, which on one hand, it's a great simcha, you know? Everybody's enjoying themselves, everybody's partying. But if you look more deeply at it, it's a very disturbing, it's a very, very disturbing story. Because what it's about, essentially, is what happens if you disobey the king. The king wants Vashi to appear at his party. And the Megillah says, in verse number 12, Vashti refuses to come. And then, of course, the king gets very angry. He's incredibly angry. It's another feature of the book that we'll get to, the great anger. And now the question is, as the book begins, what are we going to do about this terrible thing that Vashti refuses to appear at the king's party? Now there's something else about that verse that's very interesting. There's something about this verse that's very important for us in the future, and I'll tell you what it is. It's the word Vatsma'en. Vashti refuses. Now, when you read this verse, Vashti refusing, it might not strike you yet as something very significant. However, it is extremely important. Let me just make a little small introduction to the Megillah. The Megillah, first of all, is a very late work. Exactly how late it is, so the scholars debate it. It's assumed that Adele Berlin, who writes about the Megillah, assumes it's around the year 300. It's one of the later books of the Bible. Very late book of the Bible. It's probably not the latest book of the Bible. The latest book of the Bible is, no doubt, the second half of Daniel. Daniel part two. I'm not sure Daniel part one is later than the Megillah. But Daniel part two, seems to be very distinct from Daniel part one, is very late. But apart from Daniel part two, this may be the latest book of the Bible. And I mention this because however one understands this whole idea of the intertext, of the relationship between one text and the other, I still think that a later book has more opportunity to play off the earlier books. There's a whole discussion about this. What was noticed way before me, many the Midrashim notice it, and people who have written about this, said one of the key stories that the Megillah is constantly referencing, I counted once on 50 references to it, is the story of Yosef. The Joseph story is a descent, it's not the only story, but the Joseph story lies at the center of the Megillah. And that is not an accident. It's hardly an accident. Because since the Megillah is about living in exile, in the deepest sense of exile, it makes complete sense that a story the Megillah would constantly go back to in reference is the story of Yosef, which is one of the key stories of, of exile. The Jew in exile, the Jew in Mitzrayim, the Jew in the culture of Egypt. The Jew tries to maintain Judaism in some sense, or maybe he doesn't try so hard, but 
but the simulated or not assimilated Jew is the story of Joseph in Egypt. So the Megillah is constantly referencing that story. And there are many, many references. What I focus in on are not 50 references, but a few references which I think are critical. One of the critical stories of the Yosef story, critical in terms of Joseph himself, and also critical in the Megillah, and we'll get to this maybe next time, is the story of Mrs. Potiphar. That's chapter 39 of Breshit. That's the story where Yosef finds himself in the house of Potiphar. He was sold as a slave. And he gradually rises to a position of great power in the house of Potiphar. Starts as a slave, becomes a valet of Potiphar. Then he starts taking care of the house. In this case, you have the house in the field. Then the Potiphar just abandons everything into Joseph's hand. Joseph runs the show. And then Mrs. Potiphar sees all this happening. And basically she says to Yosef, if you've taken everything else, take me too. And Joseph refuses. Vayimain. That's where you have Vayimain. The word Vayimain appears in Genesis three times. That's one of the three. Vayimain. He explains why. Can't get involved with you, he says. He gives his reasons. Not for now. But he basically, he gives a long, long explanation. But the bottom line is, is Vayimain. He said no. Now, in the Megillah, actually, starts with Achashverosh, ends with Achashverosh. And in this book, what concerns us primarily is a decree issued in the name of Achashverosh to kill all the Jews on the 13th day of Adar, the 12th month. That's what our concern is. Somehow we have to stop it. But who's going to stop it? The Jews are powerless to stop it. And how can you stop it? And it turns out that only one person can actually stop it, should she choose to do so. She initially doesn't choose to do so, but she's convinced to do so, and she's the great hero of the book. That's Esther. But what's interesting is, here's what Esther never says to the king. O King Achashverosh, the Jews are a decent people. It would be wrong to murder them. She never says that. Never intimates anything of the sort. She says something different. She says, if you kill them, then maybe you got to kill me too. And even if you don't kill me, I'm not going to be a happy playmate for you if you kill my all the Jews. That's what she says. She never intimates in any way that killing the Jews would be morally indefensible and the wrong thing to do. In fact, there is nobody in this book who ever says to the king, you can't do this, it's wrong. Nobody. Except one person. There's only one person about whom the book says Vatzimaein. In the case of Vashti, she's the only one. Vashti is the only one who says, no, I'm not doing it. It's not right. I'm not doing it. Now, we know what happens to Vashti. The truth of the matter is we don't know what happens to Vashti. We have no idea what happens to Vashti. We know one thing about Vashti. She's no longer the queen. We don't know if Vashti is killed, as some Midrashim suggest. I don't think there's any evidence at all in the book that she's killed. And I think on the, the opposite is true, actually. There's strong evidence to suggest that she's not killed, and I'll tell you why. Because when this whole business with Vashti takes place, so the advisors to the king give him a piece of advice, a very important piece of advice. What are you going to do with Vashti? Vashti is Queen Vashti. Queen Vashti means apparently she has some, some political power. 
the Midrashim thinks she's actually a real queen. He's a pretender. She thinks she's really the queen. In any event, we don't know. But she's Queen Vashti. So what the advisors suggest to the king is what? They give him a piece of advice. It's very important in the book. How are you going to handle Vashti? So what they say is the following. What you don't say, they don't say exile. What they say is, you don't, what you don't want to say is, the queen doesn't support the king. Don't say that. That's a bad idea. Say something different. The queen is a bad wife. The queen is a disobedient wife. And it's not about the queen. It's about, it's about every, every marriage, you know what I mean? It's about, we can't have a situation where the women start bossing around the husbands. That would be a terrible thing. So we present it to the public as an administrative decision to maintain the, the purity of the Persian home. That, in other words, basically, in other words, basically, what it sounds like is that banishment, banishment in a sense, but not execution, sounds like divorce to me. It sounds like, that's it. She can't be the queen anymore. I'm going to remove her from the queenship. I don't think there's any intimation over here that she's actually killed. So she's not killed, but she's no longer the queen. And this is the safer that goes out to... So the point is, the only person who actually says straight out, I'm not doing this thing, I refuse to obey this hideous command of yours, is Vashti. My point is not to suggest that Vashti is is wrong in what she says. I think the opposite. But my point is a different point, which is you can't actually, from a practical standpoint, if you want to save the Jews, what you can say to the king is, it would be wrong. First of all, the king would understand those words. There's no such thing, it would be wrong. It has no meaning. It's a gibberish. What do you mean wrong? Either it's good for either the king wants it or doesn't want it, but right and wrong are a non-factor in the book, as far as the king is concerned. Very contemporary. Very. Well, it's, it's contemporary. It's always been this way. And the point is that what you have to argue is it's not in the king's interest. Now, that, that's what Esther is going to try to figure out. Mordechai doesn't get it. Mordechai doesn't understand. Mordechai said to Esther in chapter 4, go and beg the king for your people. And Esther much smarter in this respect than Mordechai because she's completely assimilated. So Esther understands that's not going to work. Because he's going to beg for the people, he doesn't care. He actually doesn't care. We'll see this. He actually couldn't care less. He's not an anti-Semite, by the way. He doesn't want the Jews to die. He just doesn't care if they live or die, that's all. I mean, okay, there's a decree to kill him. Okay, so we got to follow the rule. We'll kill him. You, Esther, I'll spare. Maybe Mordechai, I'll spare. But, but the rest of them, what can we do? This is the law, he says. What can we do? So that Esther, Mordechai says, beg the king. And Esther understands that's not the way to go. You can't beg the king. You have to convince the king something else, which is that it's not in his interest to kill the Jews, which is what Esther sets out to convince him very, very cleverly, how she convinces him. They're not your real enemy. Someone else is your real enemy. And you know what? Your enemy and my enemy are the same person. That's Esther's very clever. But the point is, Vatma'ain, when you, my point is this, and I guess we'll stop here. When you read verse number 12, Vatma'ain ha'malkar vashti, and this is the important point about the Megillah, and about many of the books. When you read this verse right now, it has no meaning. Vashti refuses. But the full understanding of the significance of Vatma'ain ha'malkar vashti only becomes apparent when you read chapter 3, 
because in chapter 3, we suddenly encounter the story of Joseph in the house of Potiphar. The parallel to Joseph in the house of Potiphar in the Megillah, in language and theme, not that they're exactly identical, but they're very similar, is Mordechai's red line. Mordechai has a red line. Joseph had a red line also. Joseph's red line is Mrs. Potiphar. I can't, I can't get involved with you, he says. And I'll tell you why I can't get involved with you. He actually gives three reasons, but two explicit reasons. One is, because your husband's been very good to me. He's given me every, every break. He's been promoting me constantly. How can I repay good with evil? And number two, he says, there's another reason I can't get involved with you. Because he trusts me. He doesn't know what he doesn't check up on me. So therefore, I can't betray a trust. Those are his two reasons. It's very simple. He doesn't say, look at Shulchan Aruch, Simon, so-and-so. He explains it. He says, those are the reasons. It's about gratitude for what's happened in the past, and it's about a betrayal of a trust. And therefore, I can't, I, I'm sorry I can't get involved with you. I can't do it. That's his red line. That's Joseph's red line, which gets him almost killed, but he ends up in jail. Not killed, but he ends up in jail. From which he emerges. And In the case of chapter 3 of the Megillah, it's about Mordechai. He has his red line, too. He's got his red line. We'll see this next time. His red line is Amalek. He's not going to bow down to Amalek. Period. End of report. He's not doing that. He can do many things, but he's not bowing down to Haman. Because Haman is Amalek. And you can, by the way, there is no prohibition in the Bible to bow down to another person. It happens all the time. There's no prohibition whatsoever. But Amalek is different. For one of two reasons. Either because bowing down to Amalek is different than bowing down to anybody else, because Amalek is actually God's enemy. So bowing down to Amalek is disrespecting God. Or because the bowing down in the case of the Megillah is not just bowing down out of respect. It has an element of actually worship in it as well. Not just Mishtachavot. It's Korim and Mishtachavim. So he's not going to do that. For one of those two reasons. But the bottom line is in the Megillah, that's, that, that's Mordechai's red line. He's not crossing that line. Come what may. Yes? It just occurred to me that this whole thing is also all about sex. Because you have the eunuchs who all bringing her up to the king or in order to bring her up. Well, there's no question. And, and they have no ability to seduce her or take advantage of her. And and then what they're really worried about is wives will say no. Takes place inside the harem. The whole yeah. gathering, who knows how many, I mean, it, it, the book is also very funny in a certain way. I mean, it's sort of maybe black humor, but it's the idea of setting up 127 state offices, which is what it comes down to. It's not about sending a, a woman or two. We'll get to this later on. As I said, the book's about excess. You're talking about setting up 127 governmental buildings in each state to procure these young women to send to the king. Only one of he sleeps with all of them, but only one of them is going to be his the next queen. I mean that's, I mean it's it's sick in a certain way. I mean it's very sick. But the point is, it's actually taking something which we encounter elsewhere. We've encountered that story elsewhere, but it multiplies it by ten thousand. We have such a story. We have kings that take women. Sarah, Shlomo marries many women. But the story where 
No, but the story where you actually seek out the most beautiful woman at the advice, of course, it's the very first verses of the book of Kings with King David. But there's one woman. And by the way, in that story, and I'll stop at this point, it's not that David requested, by the way. David did not request Abishag the Shunammite. It's the advisors. And that is something else very important about the Megillah and about the book of Shmuel and Kings, which is the problem with kingship is not a bit just a bad king. That's it. It's all the trappings of kingship. It's everything around the king. It's all the advisors spending all their time trying to figure out what would the king want as they understand it. You know what I mean? What's going to make the king happy? That's what people spending all their time trying to figure out what's going to make the king happy. So the critique of kingship in the story of Abishag the Shunammite is not about David per se. There's plenty of critiques of David, but that's not one of them. It's about the people around it. It's not that David knows what's going on altogether. He's very old and tired and sick and cold, and they're going to warm him up, and they're going to find this, search the whole land for the most beautiful woman. Okay, but that's one woman. But in the case of the Megillah, it's not one woman. It's thousands of them. 127 government offices, right? They're going to have this whole parade of women. So it takes the story of Avishag the Shunammite and it multiplies it by a thousand. Yeah, of course. It's one might say there is an element of sexual comedy in the Megillah. That is no question. But it's question is what is the nature of the comedy here? And here's the point: Del Berlin, it's very good. Torah a few times. We like we like it there a lot. So she's very good. So she thinks that the Megillah is actually a comedy. In other words, she thinks that, by that she means a comedy that you take the Megillah, you read it, and you, and you laugh. It's sort of humorous. It's sort of, a, you read a, you know, you go to a movie, it's a comedy. You read, you, you know, it's a, it has sort of, uh, serves its purpose, if you, you feel good. I don't believe that's right. I think that she's wrong. I don't think that it's a comedy. It is a comedy. And some of it is actually pretty funny. But the comedy is different. The comedy here is actually critique. And the comedy is, the question is, what is comedy about? Black humor. And what it is, is the comedy reveals, that's what Freud talks about in his book on jokes, it reveals the difference between reality on one hand and perception of reality on the other. That distinction between either what people really believe or what they claim to believe, right? That space is what we call comedy. It's very funny. So the comedians often tell the truth. But it's the truth that we normally don't want to accept because we want to fool ourselves into thinking it's something else. But in reality, what's driving us, or a piece of us, is a different set of values. So we'll see. This is the beginning. So we'll, next week, we'll, we'll continue next week with this business of the Joseph story about Tma'ain. And we'll see where it takes us. Several weeks on the Megillah, and then we'll get to Pesach. And...